Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During this edition of the show, we give you access to local physicians and public health experts with information on COVID-19 and recommendations related to it. If you have a question for our guests, please email it to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. There we go. All right. And uh, good morning. Welcome to the Lowdown. Uh, my name is Jared Griffin. I'm filling in for uh, Mike Wall, who's on a well-deserved sabbatical for the next uh, for the next few months. And uh, we've got a new format, and uh, we're going to try something out just a little bit a little bit new today. But joining me um, on the lowdown today is Dr. Shanna Theobald from the Kodiak Island Ambulatory Clinic, and uh, Dr. Evan Jones um, from Canna. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. You are staples on staples on the show now there we go i think we got your mic okay okay um so uh yes please call in with any uh questions for 863181 i'll also be monitoring uh the email uh lowdown at kmxt.org if you have any questions for for the docs today we're going to be talking um, a little bit about covid we're going to spend the first uh 10 or 15 minutes or so talking about covid and then kind of move into a new not a new topic, but uh, uh, a more in-depth um, exploration of uh, mental health and COVID today. So, um, any questions? Please uh, uh, send them send them our way. Um, let's get a brief um, update on on the COVID um, numbers. Um, about um, sixty new COVID nineteen cases have been reported over the past three days in um, in Alaska and in. Kodiak right now, we only have one active case I see here on the dashboard. No active current hospitalizations, except um, we do have, that's on uh, that's on island, hospitalizations on island. There are a couple hospitalizations of Kodiak residents off island, correct? Yes. Correct. Um, but so it's, it's, it's still out there. Um, but uh, numbers are encouraging. Yes. But, Things are starting to improve. Things are starting to look a little more rosy. And so I'm happy with what I'm seeing. Yeah, absolutely. We are definitely, it seems to be on the kind of downside, downhill part of the hopeful pandemic globally, obviously, and the United States and definitely in Alaska. I'm hoping hoping that that's the case. One thing that is, um, even though for those of us who are vaccinated, one thing that is still a concern is uh, the variants, and uh, they seem to be uh, pretty potent. Yes. And uh, there's still concerns of whether or not, you know, how well the vaccines are going to hold up against these variants. So what can, you, what can you tell us about the variants? Any new information? Yeah, so first off, the variants were renamed. People have probably seen that in the news. Um, the Alpha variant is the UK uh, variant that first came out, the B117 and then the beta, I believe, is a South Africa variant. Variant. The gamma was the one out of Brazil. And now the delta is the biggest one that you're seeing in the news, the B1617.2 out of India. And that is the one that is quickly becoming the dominant strain of COVID in the UK and now in the United States as well. It's at least 60% more contagious. And we're still finding information, you know, as time goes on and we see more cases of the delta variant we will also get more information about how it's standing up to the vaccine or how the vaccine is preventing the delta variant infections so that will kind of come in time and the concern is that it, it seems that um the sinovac the the chinese vaccine it seems to be less effective towards a variant and that's what a lot of countries are receiving at this point is the vaccine from china we're not so sure about the Pfizer vaccine that is kind of in progress. I haven't seen any updates. There, there was one update yesterday that was showed a lot of promise. It looks like the Pfizer Moderna one is pretty effective against the Delta variant. Now we're at the point where of the tested ones on the East Coast, about 10% of them are the Delta virus. 
if it wasn't confusing enough before <laughs> with the the numbers and then uh, <laughs> trying to correspond the numbers with the countries right. now we're saying the delta virus formerly known as <laughs> also number b i don't even know what the number <laughs> is <laughs> um <clears throat> but these uh it looks like the delta variant is is the one that's kind of winning out and it's kind of a tough one because it's taking a role that virus often don't do uh, the challenge for a virus is to be highly transmissible. Check. It's got that. It's it's probably the most transmissible of the viruses. Um, the other role for a virus is to not be too deadly because the more you can have some, somebody carry it around for a long time and spread it to everyone, the more successful you're going to be and you're going to become the dominant strain. Um, but the tough part is you do want to evade the immune system. So the Delta variant evades the immune system really pretty well and that's what makes it a little bit more virulent um and the unfortunate part of that is now it's become a, a little a lot more deadly than the other other variants and the wild type uh coronavirus or covid19 virus and so it has taken a turn that's uh i think we hoped uh none of the variants would take but still so far the vaccine that's widely available in the U.S. seems to be pretty effective against it. I would guess even the China, the Sino, the Sinovac, I believe Sinovac is, is probably partially effective. Yeah. That was never an awesome vaccine to begin with, mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's we're fortunate here in the states to have some vaccines that are quite good, quite effective, and very safe. Speaking of vaccines, at this point, hospitalizations are the majority of hospitalized patients are unvaccinated. I think it's, I saw uh, this morning on Twitter, 98 percent. Yeah. Yeah. 98 to 99 percent, yeah. less than 1 percent are, va are vaccinated. Yeah. So that is really important data and just, again, speaks to the importance of getting that vaccine and avoiding getting sick from COVID and becoming hospitalized obviously, and especially with these new variants out that have a lot, you know, kind of new and different profile. But not only that, it is our unvaccinated population where these variants are going to keep spinning out of, both in the United States. And Dr. Fauci just spoke about how he is concerned that in the U.S. we might, you know, there's no guarantee that any person who gets infected with COVID at this point won't create a new strain of, you know, some new variant strain but also globally is another big concern. That's where obviously we've seen all these, a lot of these variants spin out of. Right. And so this is just a call out from the medical community that there's too many names already. So if we could keep the variants to a minimum, yeah. that would be <laughs> great. Um, we, we could all use a refresher on our Greek alphabet. But it's a great thing that the U.S. is doing. We are buying a billion of the uh, Moderna Pfizer vaccines and sending them out around the world. And early on, I, I was encouraging that this is a time where the U.S. does need to have diplomacy around the world and mm -hmm. help those who can't help themselves. And the Chinese are already doing it with their vaccine, which is not as good. And we, we countries who have great wealth need to help out others who don't in this case. And it seems like we're being completely benevolent in this. We're not. It's going to come back to bite us if mm -hmm. we don't take right. care of everyone in the world. And so I, I'm happy to see that the, the, the U.S. has made the decisions that we're going to buy a lot of these vaccines and send them out around the world. Yeah. Um, uh, even you mentioned something that this is a, um, uh, a really interesting and we're going to talk about a little bit more. So um, a, a, a virus if it has a conscience. It, its goal is to be one, highly transmissible, and two, not too deadly. So I guess, is, is the virus kind of, if we see the, the virus variants becoming more and more deadly, is it just kind of out of, it has turned itself into its own Frankenstein, its own? So with ev and, every variant, I mean, the number one thing is going to be transmissibility. If it's highly transmissible, it's going to work well. And uh, it, it almost acts like, the Borg, a collective where yeah. you Star Trek right. nerds, <laughs> um, where it's individually they're they're kind of useless, 
but over time, little they, they are adapting all the time. You, you remember from Star Trek that <laughs> when you shot them with the phaser a couple times, they learned and they, were, they adapted. Um, the, I'm actually not this big a nerd, but kind of. <laughs> <laughs> the people are hardcore nerds. They're going to be like, They'll dude, you got it all wrong. <laughs> um, but they adapted quickly, and the virus is no different. It's completely mindless, but when you have billions of chances to make errors mm -hmm. in a uh, in an RNA code that has very little proofreading. When, when we make new DNA, the information for reproducing cells in our body, there's so much proofreading to it over and over and over that there's very few errors. Uh, virus does not have that, and so it's constantly making, it probably makes uh, it probably makes a million ineffective variants um, for everyone that might be slightly more effective that we don't even notice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's I would guess the the real case is it's probably billions, trillions of them before it makes a really effective um, one, but has so many chances to have variants that could be effective. So it's not necessarily conscious effort, but it is a. Like the Borg is a collective, I guess, have a conscious effort, <laughs> but it is more of of luck of the draw for um, for the virus because there are so many errors when they're making new new RNA. Yeah, and if we look at SARS and MERS, two extremely deadly uh, versions of coronavirus, that was contained pretty well, quickly, pretty effectively because. While people were symptomatic with really severe symptoms, that's also when they would be the most contagious in spreading that virus. Mm -hmm. And that's why both of those pandemics were shut down. They were very deadly compared to coronavirus as far as when you get sick. I think it was a 10% mortality rate. Um, but at the same time, it, exactly, it kind of put itself out of business because right. it was contained so effectively. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so uh, there has been, and uh, I, th I think this is this is COVID related. Um, there, there's this really bad cold. It seems to be going around. Every single member of my family, except for me, because I loaded myself up with Zycam, and uh, <laughs> I did not want to get sick. But um, uh, uh, but all of the symptoms of of COVID, mm -hmm. but it's it's a bad cold. And um, so I, 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 the question, I guess, has to do with, with masking. And we're talking about this at the radio station. We're talking about the college, too. If you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. But if you're showing symptoms of anything, we do ask you to put a, a mask on, even if you think it's just a cold. Yes, absolutely. Again, that contains any respiratory virus and helps uh, from a public health standpoint, it helps prevent that spread and then all of those contacts coming in to get tested for COVID and all of the other kind of public health burden that that leads to. Yeah, you think about it, there's many countries around the world, like if you go to Japan before this, tons of people wore masks. If they were starting to feel ill, they'd wear a mask in public as a courtesy to the others around them. Um, here in the United States, it's not typical, but now I think it would probably be more socially acceptable. It would, it would have been weird five years ago if you're walking around with a mask on. Mm -hmm. um, now I think people would be like, okay, whatever. You know, they might not know what it was for, um, but I think it would be much more acceptable now. And so I, I do think it's probably a good idea that if you're feeling sick, just throw a mask on so you don't spread that to other people. It was definitely noticed this past winter. Um, we were ta we've talked about this on past shows. I had... I don't remember a single positive flu case mm -hmm. in any of the patients I saw all winter. Yeah. Um, the rhinovirus and cold-causing coronavirus levels were way, way down. Influenza was way, way down. And it is because of the steps we're taking. And so the critics who say it's not going to stop, but it's a virus, it, it does. It's effective. The, the steps we took are obviously effective. Mm -hmm. And it's just pure putting your head in the sand to say that this is not effective um but uh it's it's tough to be, and i've heard some people saying well we should just keep on going this way because so, so many so few people were sick last winter mm -hmm. and I and don't know. some there have been some flu strains that have gone extinct i think i remember seeing a headline that um i should have i didn't make a copy of it but would it surprise you to find if 
that some flu strains they 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 no longer exist because yeah. everybody's masking up worldwide. It very well could be. I mean, we talked about with the lice case. If you want, if everybody in the world got yeah. rid of their lice on the same day, they'd all go away. And the same yeah. is true with a lot of these viruses that they're just in the human population at this point. Uh, we don't get influenza from our dog giving us kisses. Mm-hmm. Um, we might get other things, but <laughs> uh, it is true. I, I it wouldn't surprise me if some yeah. of the influenza strains that were less prevalent just died out. Right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to let's kind of transition into um, um, f- uh, COVID and and mental health, and we can even get into general mental health. Um, there are you know different. I uh, have some different um, scenarios and contexts for for mental health here, and then we can talk about some. Um, uh, some tips for dealing with um, mental health issues that you might be that you might be experiencing. Um, so um, the first thing is uh, this is from oh medical news today that there are some doctors that are now labeling something called COVID nineteen anxiety syndrome, where they see in um, in some patients. Let me see if I can find it. The characteristics of COVID nineteen anxiety syndrome are uh, compulsive symptom checking you know, heightened, uh, worrying, um, just avoidance of public and social situations. Um, and they even have, uh, indications of like post-traumatic stress, um, suicidal ideation, health anxiety. So, um, have you heard of COVID, COVID anxiety syndrome? This seems to be something, a, a new term I've seen in a couple of places. I haven't heard of that specific one, but we've talked about this a lot. There's a lot of critics of all of the things that have been done to prevent the spread of COVID, that it's too isolating, it causes too much depression, causes too much anxiety. And I want to voice now, it's not without any merit. I mean, there, there is something to what they're saying. It's tr- trying to figure out where is the balancing line, where is the middle that it were doing more harm than good. And I, early on, I told you I had patients, I had a patient who hadn't left their house from, I want to say it was like March until they saw me last October. They had not left their house. And I was like, oh, please don't do that. Mm-hmm. People with a, there are people with a baseline anxiety who have been just run over by this disease and some pretty heartbreaking things have gone on. I'm, I worry about the isolation that it does cause, especially among our elders, that it's probably because of that isolation, it's probably worsened Alzheimer's. It's worsened their connection with their families. And so I don't, I, I, I get where this is all coming from and it's not a surprise to me at all. And then on top of that, you have a disease that can cause mental illness. And so that makes it even more uh, anxiety provoking. And so I, I, I completely get where people are coming from when they get frustrated with isolation that this disease has caused. Um, and I, I feel for people making decisions on this because there's there's not one like oh yeah this is the right answer right here it's it's a balancing of risks and benefits all the time mm-hmm. yeah. i haven't heard the term either but we have definitely seen it in our patients and i think it's a very apt term it's a it's a good term but again like dr jones was just saying about one in four people that have had covid have depression and other neurological psychiatric kind of signs and symptoms are very common in covid patients including headache, fatigue, you know, a lot of the things that we also see with depression. Um, so there is, it, it was a very difficult balancing act to keep everybody safe from the virus that causes, you know, significant both mental health and obviously physical and other medical problems. Um, and also at the same time, help prevent the mental health kind of from the isolation. And also you know, with the youth, we're seeing a lot of Mental health disorders, increased hospitalizations, increased visit, ER visits for mental health in especially young people. It's been a really difficult year for mm-hmm. everybody. I think we get, have to look at it as a time. So the tough part about this anxiety that you're particularly talking about where people are kind of worried about the disease right. and mm-hmm. really compulsively checking to make sure they're safe. 
it makes it even harder because we're going to ask these people to come into a medical clinic where they don't want to go if they're worried about the disease. And it's, uh, and the things I ask about uh, anyone who's depressed, who comes in my office, gets the same speech from me, please get out and exercise for 35 mm -hmm. minutes outdoors yeah. every day. Even if it's raining, just say, this is part of my routine. I'm going to go out and exercise every day. Well, if you're nervous about getting the disease, you, the, the crazy thing about anxiety is you make your world smaller and smaller and smaller mm -hmm. until it's small enough that you feel like you have better control over it. Anxiety is decreased when we have control over our surroundings. And it can mean a lot of things. It can be trying to control the people around you. Mm. It can mean trying to control our environments. There are some people who are so anxious that even though they live in a home by themselves, they may never leave their bedroom because they feel like I can control what happens in this bedroom. Uh, there's no surprise. There's nothing that's going to take them, uh, n nothing that's going to surprise them and provoke their anxiety worse. And so, unfortunately, I'm asking people who are having a lot of anxiety to come into my office. You know, not only leave your bedroom, leave your home, go to a place where sick people are, <laughs> and we we can help. Um, mm -hmm. But if you never do that, I think the biggest single thing you can do is start just no matter what, I'm going to go for a walk every day. It's as effective as an antidepressant to be outdoors. Mm -hmm. um, and I strongly encourage anxiety and depression, people with, struggling with anxiety and depression to just go for a walk every day. And you can start with two minutes if that's what it takes to, to get the ball rolling. Um, but I'd love for everybody to get out for half an hour every day. You you uh, used the phrase um, baseline anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it, it's that assume everybody's got some kind of anxiety about something, but um, uh, uh, now's a good time to find out what your baseline is. What does that mean to find your your, your baseline <laughs> of your of depression, anxiety? Um, what what does that mean? Well, I think to me, baseline anxiety is. Uh, your baseline can change over your lifetime, but where you're at when everything is good. Um, are you still kind of anxious when everything in your life is going well? And some people are extremely anxious all the time. Um, I use, uh, I have high blood pressure. I treat it with medication. I've had it since I was probably 17 or 18. Um, I chose to ignore it for a long time. I tried to get very fit and much thinner than I am now and even cut salt out of my diet for a month. And I love salt. Um, <laughs> uh, did all, yeah, did all mm -hmm. the steps I could. And my blood pressure never went down to a normal level. And so some people like me have high blood pressure no matter what we do. It's where my thermostat is set. I don't know the reason uh, particularly, and I haven't investigated completely. Uh, I have to take medication for the rest of my life. There's some people who in situations have anxiety and they can work on those issues and it can go down and they can get to a level where they have an acceptable level of anxiety. There are some people whose thermostat is set differently and they're constantly anxious no matter what's going on. And those people may require medications for the rest of their life. And there's no shame in it. There's no like, oh man, I have to take an mm -hmm. antidepressant for my anxiety. It's, a, it's just a tool Mm -hmm. uh, to make you feel a little better. I'm not a big medication guy. I, I try, I tell my patients mm -hmm. this is poison, but you got to decide which poison is better than the disease. Mm -hmm. In order to be functional, a lot of people need to be on an antidepressant every day. There are some poisons that we used to use that were pretty horrific that worked, um, like Valium and stuff that when used on a regular basis can be deadly. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but that we have better antidepressants now. Um, they may not be make you feel quite as calm as taking a Valium, but they do work over time. But it is kind of a rewiring of the brain. So, and, and once again, everybody's a little different. If you've tried an antidepressant for anxiety in the past um, and it didn't work for you, don't give up. There's lots of them out there and everybody's just a little different. And there's lots of different approaches to this. And you got to get with a doctor who's curious enough to work with you. But you also have to give them a chance because some of these take a month or more to begin working. And so if you tried it for three days and you're like, it didn't do anything for me, 
you're you're you haven't been well enough educated to understand this is this is a battle of months to work on some mm -hmm. of these diseases and and whatever your baseline is was before covid your baseline might be different now yep absolutely yeah we do have two screening questionnaires for depression and anxiety one of them is called the generalized anxiety disorder mm -hmm. screening seven questions or gad seven um so people what we do when people and also people can call in so if you really are still afraid to come to clinic give us a call reach out ask for help i i know we're going to talk about kind of what we can do at the end but i also just want to make sure i put that plug in early on and yeah we would do kind of like a screening a baseline like where are you at now and then also can compare pre-covid to kind of see what's our goal to get back mm -hmm. to um, and then depending on that number, there's a lot of different things that people can do. I think we're going to talk more about that. Um, there's a, uh, a story, uh, last week in Anchorage Daily News that, um, um, this is, I think, uh, maybe this isn't quite mental health, but maybe it is, um, in relation to, to eating disorders, uh, more, the high, the headline is basically more Alaskans are being diagnosed with eating disorders, um, uh, now, um, than before, than, than before, uh, before COVID. Um, so eating disorders, it's not an, it's not a new problem, but, um, uh, more people being, uh, diagnosed with it. And the problem for Alaska is um, accessing treatment. There, um, uh, the resources are scarce. So, I was wondering, um, thoughts on that? Uh, yeah. So, I attended the Alaska Family Medicine Conference this year, virtually, obviously. And one of our sessions was on eating disorders. First of all, they are much more prevalent than they're diagnosed. And second of all, physicians don't receive great training in eating disorders. Um, maybe, you know, if you've done a specific rotation in medical school or residency, but in general, I didn't receive any. I don't know. One of the big things that the doctor kind of taught us was that most doctors are not very well informed on eating disorders. So part of the increase in diagnosis might just be that we're getting more education on it and doing a better job of screening for it. Um, or it also might be that it is increasingly prevalent Mental health disorders in general have seen an uptick in the last 10 years, depression, anxiety, that also can go along with eating disorders, insomnia, you know, all kind of all of the downstream effects, too, of how we're feeling. If we're not feeling great, all these other kind of, I don't know, dysfunctional behaviors can come out of that. Um, but we definitely need to learn more about how to address eating disorders because there is really limited capacity for mental health in the state, but also in the United States as well at this point. Uh, primary care physicians, we do need to learn more about it, and we do need to be better about understanding how to communicate well with people who have eating disorders that come into clinic, where we're not triggering, you know, when they have, we have everybody step on the scale as a vital sign, that can be triggering for people. And if we don't have the tools to better manage it, people don't get help when they come to the doctor's office. So I think it is something that we we want we need to be learning more about and I'm I think there's going to be an increased kind of education for physicians on that in this coming future. And you know, Alaska's had uh, uh did you read the story about the um the the star runner Ali Ostrander from uh, the Kenai Peninsula. She broke all these state records when she was in high school. Now she's in college and um she was preparing for uh, Olympic trials. And um, she's ranked like number five or six in in the country for for runners, and um, uh, the, a story dropped a few days ago where she had to drop out or take a time out to seek treatment for eating disorders because she was about to lose her sponsorship. Um, her sponsor, mm -hmm. uh, her corporate sponsor, uh, said you need you need you need help, and she. Uh, uh, which is something rare, you know, she posted all over social media that this mm -hmm. is something that she's been struggling with, especially over the past, you know, 12 to 15 months. Um, and uh, so it, it, uh, even for young people, it's kind of just a few, you know, this is a brand new story. So it's, it sparked a, a little bit of a conversation uh, right now. And I, I think the eating disorders can go both ways, too. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the saying always went when I had friends who were really into biking, they always said, 
remember it's easier to take a pound off of you than it is to take a pound off the bike you're riding um, because you can only get bikes so light and so there is a lot of pressure in the competitive sports world to be as fit and lean as possible sometimes but at that leanness there comes a cost of strength and so mm -hmm. there comes a point where it does become very unhealthy but then there's there are people like me who uh, one of the reasons I've uh, we've talked about on the show before I'm I'm doing 11,000 steps a day I'm trying to average that through the summer so I walk a million steps part of me doing that is if I'm out walking I'm not near food be, be, <laughs> yeah. being honest I mean, that's yeah. the, tr the that's truth true. though oh I get it I get it and it's true for all of us. and yeah. so yeah. Um, for me COVID has been awful yeah. because mm -hmm. we've been asked to spend more time isolating. So we're sitting in our home and we're bored and our body wants some pleasure. And so mm -hmm. food brings us pleasure. Um, it's, it's one thing I fight for on a regular basis for a lot of our elders who people are like, oh, they need to be tube fed from now on. And I'm like, is that what you want, though? Because eating is one of the pleasures of life. Mm -hmm. And to take that way is a big deal. Um, it's, and so I, I, I get it that both taking off weight might be an eating disorder, but also those of us who are sitting at home, maybe because of depression, uh, maybe because of anxiety, or maybe because we've been told we have to stay home and we're eating more than we ever have before. And it becomes overwhelming after a while because we've gained so much weight. I've had mm -hmm. patients who have gained 50, 60 pounds during COVID. And it reaches the point where they just give up and they're like, I, I, there's, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do now because I had a tough time losing five pounds before. There, there's always hope and there's always a way out. And I, I just want to encourage you, don't give up. Start, start working with uh, a personal trainer uh, around you or go out for a walk with friends. Start, start with one step at a time. And it took a while to put on that weight. It's going to take a long time to get off, maybe even longer. But don't grow discouraged with it. Keep moving forward. Don't give up. Don't give up. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, oh, one uh, one story that came out of um, one a couple of studies that came out of England is uh, was a study on how COVID nineteen has affected extroverts versus introverts and how. Introverts have been great, but extroverts um, have suffered a higher mm -hmm. mental health toll in the in the lockdown. And um, <clears throat> uh, the uh, the quote here is: uh, "People with an open personality, and this is interesting, especially women with an open personality, are paying a big price from this lockdown in terms of mental health." And this kind of branches into another larger discussion about mental health and women. Um, uh, studies coming out about mothers, about teachers, K-12 teachers who are still more predominantly women, um, and uh, uh, extroverts who, um, especially women, are suffering, um, are paying a bigger price, a bigger mental mental health price. But um, uh, So I, I found that interesting because, you know, I work with theater and everybody kind of assumes that a lot of the uh, theater and actors and kids that I work with are extroverts and they're really not you know they're they're more introverts but um there are some you know the ones that want to be out there on the stage those are definitely the extroverts and i could see how it was affecting yeah. um them over this past year but the introverts stayed you know for the most part pretty chill but they still had some issues too but uh, had an excuse to kind of stay home and watch movies <laughs> exactly. right <laughs> and so i i i get it i'm I don't know. As a child, as a huge introvert, I've forced myself to be more extroverted. And so I, I kind of understand both sides a little bit. I think I've settled out somewhere in the middle of the road. Um, but I could see there are a lot of people who are very social, and this has been very difficult on them to go mm -hmm. through this disease. And a lot of them are still trying to figure out what's the new me. Yeah. I've seen really great things come out of it like social groups that have popped up or just you know creative ways that people have new channels people have created to connect which is awesome and if you are an extrovert I think you know still pursuing those relationships in that community is really important obviously now we can get together again and I feel like there's just this surge of like joy of people getting back together especially outside and you know get your vaccine because that really makes you safest in that group setting 
Um, but yeah, I think it has been really difficult for the extroverts and there has been really creative people, you know, creative things that have come out of it, which has been fun to see. But yeah, I, that pattern definitely was very obvious. The introverts being like, this is so great. And the extroverts like really suffering. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and uh, um, along those lines about, um, especially those who are very um, social, um, there is a study from University of Glasgow um, that COVID um, uh, lockdown school closures hit uh, mother's mental health mm-hmm. more than um, father's. And it was almost precisely because of the social network that is provided by um, the schools and the kids. Um, that Let me see if I can find it. Um, so um, mothers, uh, mothers have borne um, the brunt of uh, mental health effects as a result of um, school closures, regardless of how long the school closures were. Um, but um, fathers barely barely affected by schooling mm-hmm. by by they were obviously still affected but by by school closures um they said for fathers it um virtually made uh, no difference um in their mental health um mothers with at least one child um in a school that has been closed or temporarily you know shut down they're uh, more likely to report losing more sleep uh to worry to feel constantly under strain um, and to feel like they can't overcome their difficulties, to feel unhappy or depressed. They estimate that school closures could be responsible for about half of the decline in mental health experienced by mothers during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it is striking that on average, fathers' mental health does not seem to be affected by school closures. Yeah, that makes complete sense, especially, I mean, women tend to be nurturers. I am a huge proponent of gender equality. I'm a feminist. I think women, you know, should have equal pay and all equal rights as men. At the same time, I think women do tend to be the nurturers in their family and the community. That's just how biologically women are wired. And I've seen it over and over again in, you know, women in the community, moms, my sisters, friends, family, that they're the ones that are not only staying home, potentially losing money or trying to make work work with basically being a teacher at home, Mm -hmm. making sure the kids stay on Zoom classes when they're five, six, seven, eight years old. And computers are the last thing that we're biologically kind of inclined towards, especially young kids that have so much energy trying to keep their grades up, trying to make sure they participate in all these things is extremely, extremely stressful. And no matter what you do, you feel like you're not good enough. No matter how mm-hmm. hard you try, what energy you're putting in, it's just not how we're meant to function as a society. We are wired for connection. We are wired for community. And that was all thrown out of whack during the pandemic. So it makes sense. And teacher, I think you mentioned teachers as one of the groups of females. And it makes sense, too, because, I mean, they're still, again, the nurturers. And you just feel, you see every day how what you're doing may or may not be actually making much difference because you don't have that kind of in-classroom mm-hmm. personal connection anymore. So it absolutely makes sense. And um, I I mean, it's not the first time we've the, that society has been through a pandemic. There's definitely going to be some, you know, downstream effects from this. I also think that people are really resilient. And I'm hoping, you know, this next year can kind of bring back to, it's like any time, any living community <laughs> has a bad year, I think we can recover. We can bounce back from that. And I'm hoping this is going to be the year that we can really see healing from a lot of those kind of difficult mental health. We're we're talking about recovering and bouncing back, but what needs to change? I mean, right. We've, we've, we've learned something. So in in terms of mental health, I think one thing you brought up was definitely like more training, more conversations about, especially for physicians for um, uh, eating disorders, but um, we we talk about bouncing back, but we've got to bounce back better. Yes. So what sh- what do we what do you what do doctors need? Mental health resources, the state and the the country to really value preventive medicine and mental health resources. I think Alaska's very strained with you know not just mental health hospital beds, mm-hmm. but also the psychiatrists, psychologists, behavioral health clinicians that are available for people i mean doctors yes we want to get more training we need to get more training it's hard to keep adding on more and more 
extended, you know, what you're going to cover in your visit. Mm -hmm. Um, but definitely I, I, especially like the eating disorders, I'm very minimally trained on that. I think we're pretty well trained, uh, really my training was very strong in anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of doctors are, cause that's just so common. Um, but yeah, I think really valuing the importance of those resources and putting the money into it would be good. I, I had actually this discussion with Senator Sullivan. He asked me what's what's the most important things that you see moving forward uh, in the U.S. And my opinion is more than the threat of Russia, more than the threat of yeah. China, is the threat that the U.S. is going to crumble on itself mm -hmm. because we have such poor mental health care in mm -hmm. this country. We have medications for schizophrenia and bipolar that many people simply won't take because the side effects are so huge and the benefits aren't enough. And so people say, well, where are we gonna get all the money to pay for the ideas? And, and I, I have a very ambitious thing where, so drug companies are not going to pay for research on medications that are gonna benefit homeless people. Most of the people living on the streets are dealing with mental illness. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of them are dealing with mental illness on a daily basis and they cannot function because of their mental illness. And they probably, uh, uh, probably a large portion of them have been on medications for these, but the medications are terrible. Uh, some people respond really well to them and we're doing the best we can, but, but uh, this is one of the few times, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I tend to be a little bit uh, conservative that I don't think government is the answer for everything. This is one case where we, nobody is looking out for these people and we are paying for the services to take care of them. The payment, unfortunately, is extremely large jails where we put mentally ill people who have no business being there because yeah. the reason they're there is because they're mentally ill. I personally have had patients in the jail here in town who spit on a police officer or something like that. And I tried to explain to them, like, putting them in jail is not going to make any difference to him. He has no idea what's going on right now, but getting getting a court mandate that uh, he needs to stay on his medication for three months rather than putting him in jail for three months would be way more beneficial for him. And he would give you far less trouble and cost way less. Mm -hmm. And frankly, once he'd done it for a while, he found a combination that worked well for him and he hasn't caused, he hasn't had any trouble with the law for years now. Um, but we've decided in the society that treating mentally ill, the, a good solution is to build bigger jails, which are extremely expensive, um, and to just allow uh, a lot of our veterans uh, to be homeless. Um, a lot of our people who are, you know, decided to start taking drugs and alcohol that they can live on the street. And we've lost a huge slice of productivity in this country because they're not working uh, that it's an economic toll on this country that is enormous. Um, and the people who, we, we look at people who are using methamphetamines and heroin and stuff like that as they made a bad choice. I agree, it's a bad choice to head down that road. It's awful. But they're, they're, we're, they're not trying to say, Yahoo, this is so much fun to be on heroin and meth. They're trying to treat underlying mental illness and unfortunately, maybe because they haven't tried hard enough, uh, maybe because they never gave it a chance, maybe because we just simply don't have the drugs that work for them, they have looked at medicine and it hasn't given them the answer mm -hmm. that a, a few days of feeling normal on methamphetamines uh, gave them. Unfortunately, methamphetamines is an awful drug um, that even with one single use, changes your brain not just the chemistry it changes your brain physically so that you become incredibly dependent on it so it leads down a spiral in a completely different tragic direction mm -hmm. but when i talked to senator sullivan I, he was like well what do you think the solution is <laughs> i was like I, being honest with you I, I almost think this is like the manhattan project where the government needs to put billions mm -hmm of dollars and the finding medications and treatments for these people mm -hmm. and maybe even going so crazy as to trying to find a cure for these rather than a daily medication mm -hmm. for these diseases how can we rewire the brain back to the way it was supposed to be um, and it's ambitious it's crazy maybe not even possible 
I don't know. But all I know is I remember when I first started coming to Kodiak, I didn't see a terrible amount of people in the 80s, uh, downtown drunk, getting in fights, harassing people. I do see it now. When I grew up in Fairbanks, when you dumped your garbage off at the dumpster station, uh, there's people, frankly, like me, who are dumpster divers, and you'd look for cool stuff. <laughs> now, you, now when I went up there I, uh, a few years ago, there was a horde of people who went running after your truck to see if you had anything good in there. And you could tell a lot of these folks weren't quite right, mm -hmm. and they were just trying to make it. And we've decided this is an acceptable treatment option in the U.S., mm -hmm. and it's not. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I'm going to uh, play um, a really, really short story from a public radio station in uh, Colorado, uh, KRCC, about um, a state of emergency that mm -hmm. uh, the Children's Hospital in Colorado has, has declared. Let me see if this is going to... The hospital's chief medical officer, David Brumbaugh, says the past four months have been unlike anything he's seen in his 20 years of practice. Our kids have run out of resilience. Uh, their tank is empty, and that's where we are right now as a system, and uh, it's impacting families across our metro area, across our state. Compounding stress for a year and increased hopelessness are the two main reasons the hospital system has seen more cases. Suicide is one of the main causes of death for Colorado youth. Hospital leadership is calling for more flexibility from the state to create partnerships to address these issues system-wide. I'm Elena Rivera, KRCC News. Um, another quote here, um, despite things, this is from uh, uh, one of the uh, hospital executives, um, despite things getting better in terms of COVID, kids have dealt with chronic stress for the past year that has interrupted their development. Now kids are asked to be starting back into life again, and they don't have the resources to do that. They're burnt out, and they feel so behind, they don't know how to catch up. Yeah, I read that article, and it's... I think in Kodiak, we're lucky because we're not in such an urban environment that kids, you know, it's just so crowded and kids can't get out. But we're definitely seeing a lot of this kind of similar burnout among staff. I mean, I was talking with teachers and they said it was just such a hard year. And the behaviors that they've never really seen in kids were were accentuated. This, Especially the last semester it was just like classroom mm -hmm. control was out the window because it, everyone's just done. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if you... It's a tough one because we've kind of entered a time in society where we remember what it's like to fail as a kid and we don't want to see our kids fail. Failing is an important part of life. Mm -hmm. And we've probably protected our kids too much at times and in some cases and not nearly enough in other cases. And we have this dichotomy of kids mm -hmm. who are either getting crushed because they're not being protected or we've got the helicopter mom and dad, and I put both of them in there, oh, yeah. <laughs> who don't want anything bad to happen to their kid. And because of that, they don't have much resilience mm -hmm. because in failure, so much is learned and so much uh, internal strength is developed. If, we don't, if we're exercising and our muscles don't fail, they'll never grow stronger. And the same is true with our kids, that failure is a great teacher and it's not a bad thing in a controlled environment. But at the same time, there is once again a balance to this, that protecting our children is uh, one of our utmost, point, uh, utmost uh, requirements as a parent. But at the same time, um, not letting them fail at all is, is a form of abuse still. Hmm. Yeah. Suicide rates in Alaska among youth are some of the highest in the nation, mm -hmm. and they have been. They were before COVID. I dealt with it a lot up in Nome, Alaska, and Kotzebue as well, lots of mental health. And I think... For our youth, one thing I want to say, there's some really great resources out there. There's an um, Inuit woman in Canada who has reasons to stay alive. And every day she posts, or every couple of days she posts just a beautiful, really, alas or like, um, let's see, circumpolar native <laughs> kind of specific reasons. Like, you know, that connection to your family, your community, and what your ancestors have given to you. And like from a human perspective biological perspective every living being we are wired to want to survive to stay alive suicide is kind of just that like showing that there's something wrong with how society has you know whether it's we've lost that 
connection with our community. We've lost something that's that's kind of changed. And trying to get back to those roots, I think, is really, really important. And there are some great resources online for youth if you look at, like, one thing is resiliency practices. So what kinds of things can make you more resilient? Getting out exercising, we talked about that. Sleep. Kids are not getting sleep. I've sleep. seen so many Oh, my goodness, yes. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> adolescents in my practice in the last couple months that have come in for headaches, irritability, all sorts of kind of downstream effects. And as soon as we start talking about sleep, it's obvious. They're going to bed at 1, one 2 o'clock in the morning, having to get up at 6, 7 a.m., you know, to mm-hmm. get their school stuff done on their phones, on social media that isn't always the most positive environment for feeling good about yourself. And um, anyway, so one big thing is getting, for youth, adolescents, you need close to around 10 hours of sleep a night and really prioritizing that. Turn the phone off. Get away from that blue light by like 8, 9 Mm -hmm. p.m. and just create that environment where you're getting that good amount of sleep. The other big thing, eating a healthy diet. We have learned so much that, one, our gut is our second brain. And all of the bacteria, you know, um, the majority of the genes that we carry in our human body being are actually bacteria Mm -hmm. genes. So the information that goes from our gut to our brains is extremely important. And what we need to be feeding is the good bacteria that help us digest. They create, you know, feel good endorphins, molecules, chemicals, communication signals to our brain. The foods that feed that good gut bacteria are the basic healthy diet. Like if you go back 100, 200 years ago, what would you be eating? You'd be eating pretty much plant-based diet with healthy, lean, you know, hunted meats Mm -hmm. versus the grocery store, chemicalized antibiotics, hormone-fed, whatever different kinds of meats. So getting back to, for kids too, and there's just so much junk food that's marketed to kids as well, the, you know, Doritos, the Hot Cheetos, all those really... They make you feel good. Yeah, all those delicious (laughs) things. But those chemicals are completely disrupting the gut floor. There's a lot of really good studies about that. And Mm so sleep, healthy diet, exercise. The other thing is one of the other resiliency practices that my mentor in residency taught me was journaling, writing it down. I mean, when you... and also reading other people's journals if you read stories from you know the 1918 pandemic or people that have gone through really difficult situations like you know germany the holocaust it is incredibly it helps you build resiliency to realize like other humans have been through hard things before what do they do to make to make it through and then i can do that as well so finding those tools that can really help get you through those hard times and knowing that you're not alone, knowing that we're all in this together and really kind of focusing on what good you can do in the community for others. If you're feeling a certain way, how can I help other people who might be feeling that way as well? Mm -hmm. That's a huge, and gratitude. Gratitude is a huge resiliency practice. Being grateful for what we have, focusing on the good we have, and that makes kind of the good that we have feel even better. So those are some things that I think, yeah, youth are accessible to all of us Mm -hmm. and our youth as well. And yeah, I, I've um, I've worked with uh, kids and teenagers for for many many years now, and I have never had so many calls or texts or emails from parents just over the past six to eight months who have you know are concerned about their kids' um, um, mental health, and you know thankful for that, that at least they have theater and you know some of the, some of the other things, but I, I'd never seen that before. And then w- one of the concerns that um, that that came up um that i i haven't seen in any of these stories yet is cutting mm. um i had not uh, uh seen that as much in some of the kids that that i work with before um uh, uh and so i imagine this is all part part of the mm-hmm. part of the, the the mental health um package so um yeah, it's just interesting because it's another release of anxiety when people do this. I actually had, I sat down with a young gal and I was just trying to really probe into it and, and learn from her, you know, what what does it do for you? Mm-hmm. And she's, she was like, it, it does just give me a moment of anxiety relief. Mm-hmm. And then I know afterwards it's going to be worse because now I feel guilty about mm-hmm. doing it. And and she said even the pain and stuff makes it worse, and so it's a, a, temp- a really really temporary f- feeling of release of anxiety, mm-hmm. 
that immediately returns and it's worse than it was before. But it's hard for it was very difficult for her to quit. Um, let's uh, let's let's uh, kind of wrap up with some um, tips on um, uh, 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 keeping track of our uh, mental health transitioning out of COVID uh, restrictions. Um, we've talked about some of the uh, coping. Well, is is diet and exercise? That's a coping skill. Would you say? Absolutely. Coping skills, anything that helps you cope better or get through it better. Yeah. Except for Cheetos, except for the hot flaming <laughs> Cheetos. Good, a healthy <laughs> diet and a good amount of exercise. Don't look at my grocery cart. Too <laughs> <closely>. <laughs> um, how do you know if a coping skill is working? Do yeah, you, you just feel better? I, feel I, better. I think there is looking at not only healthy thoughts, but healthy behaviors mm-hmm. and seeing how your life is starting to play out. Um, and seeing where your mind is spending most of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is finding your anxiety or stress baseline. Um, are there? Um, uh, how can can people do that on their own? Um, should they see a, a mental health or a medical professional to help them find that? That's a tough one because, mm-hmm. like we said, there's been shifts in what what people's baseline is, mm-hmm. and. I, I think in some people it would take years and years and years to let's say stress level one to ten they're always at a five um it would take Mm. them years and years and years to get from a five to a four where some people may have been at a five through this epidemic but they're they really can easily shift down to a two i I think we're all different i don't know how you figure that one out that's a tough one i think that's almost a self-reflective talking with a counselor sort of Mm. picture Yeah, I mean, there is a questionnaire that can kind of tell you where you're at now, and you can look at it and say, "Hey, where was I before? What what do I think my general, you know, number is when I'm not pre-pandemic or just not stressed by whatever other whatever else is going on in life?" Mm. And if you wanted to look that up, I mean, you can Google GAD seven, GAD seven, or PHQ nine for depression questionnaires. Mm-hmm. There's lots of different questionnaires. Those are the two easy ones that a lot of doctor's offices use that just take uh, like three minutes to mm-hmm. two or three minutes to fill out both of them. And so I, I, I'd encourage you, if you're worried about it, take a look at these things. And it kind of looks into how much is this affecting your life? What ways is it affecting your life? Mm-hmm. Um, journaling, uh, you had mentioned, helps us evaluate our feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also record kind of what's going on and, and, gratitude journaling is huge five things you're grateful for every day i mean we still do have even in all of this we still do have a lot and i know some people are like oh you know i hate it when people say oh it could always be worse because of course it could always be worse however to really realize that and like think about i mean there are people in you know syria there's refugees living in literally tents in the snow throughout this last winter with covid like Mm. when you start to realize what we do have and kind of focus on that it can completely shift your mindset and your mood to realize just to focus on what is good. And that is a huge, you know, that does release those endorphins. It helps kind of recreate neural structural pathways in our brain. The more positive thoughts we have, the more we actually create structures in our brain that continue to kind of help us think those positive thoughts. Um, uh, one other thing I've seen for uh, uh, to help us cope with the mental health and as as uh, as things are opening up is um, understanding, I guess your 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 own boundaries and then also respecting other people's boundaries. People are, have developed different boundaries now with uh, anxiety and social situations and, and and social interactions. So being, I guess it's kind of it's almost like a mindfulness um, uh, kind of practice and. Uh, I'm, I am. I, I believe I am much more aware than I was before of other people's boundaries, their bubbles, you know, mm-hmm. as we as as we might call them. Um, other other tips or last things you want to say about um... if if something if you've seen a medical provider before for your anxiety and depression and it hasn't worked out, try again. If you've mm-hmm. seen a counselor before and you just haven't connected, try again. Don't just suffer alone, uh, even if it means starting with a friend and talking to them. Uh, if you feel like inactivity is a big part of it and you don't feel like you can work, walk 11,000 steps, walk 500 today and mm-hmm. start building your way up. Think of something that's ridiculous for you not to do and start with that and build from there. Um, but take, take small steps to begin with and start the healthy habit of doing it every single day. Um, and if you decide 
like I said, I, I'm going to walk five miles a day starting right now. And the next day you're horribly sore and feeling <laughs> awful. You're unlikely to do it again. But if you say, hey, I'm, I'm just going to walk to my mailbox and back rather than taking the car, um, I know I can do that and start doing that every day. Beginning healthy habits is, is the beginning to get better. And look out for help. Um, we do have mm -hmm. bubbles around us that kind of are, uh, in some ways, they can be formed by our anxiety. And some people's bubbles are very large. Um, don't force your way into people's bubbles, but encourage them to come out of mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Giving each other lots of grace and space and, and just kindness. The more kind we are to each other, the more kind we are to ourselves, the more kind we are to others. And so really just knowing that everything, you know, what we're feeling now is okay. And this too shall pass. And yeah, just give, extending that graciousness to other people too in their bubbles or whatever they're going through right now. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a beautiful note to end on. But one question did come in uh, to kind of, uh, this should probably be a very short question. Um, for those already with a vaccination uh, or the vaccine, um, is a, you think a booster is going to be recommended in the next six months to a year? It's looking like that will probably be the case. Yeah. I think there's a good chance that it'll eventually end up. We still don't know at this point, though. Yeah, maybe even annual vaccines like the flu shot. Mm-hmm. We'll find out soon. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, that, I think that about wraps it up for uh, for the lowdown. Thank you to my guests, uh, Dr. Evan Jones, Dr. Shannon Theobald. Thanks again for joining me on or joining KMXT on uh, on a Wednesday morning. Thank you. All right. For thank you. Us. Good talk.